Welcome, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True and creator and co-host of the Inner MBA program. It's my delight to share with you this exclusive Inner MBA Socially Conscious CEO podcast series. The series is built from interviews that Soren Gordhammer, co-host of the Inner MBA, and I have conducted over the past three years. The series features over 40 transformational CEOs from around the world, running a diverse range of companies, all with a shared mission, that business be a force of collective good. These conversations are rich and meaningful, open and candid about personal failures, discoveries under pressure, and breakthroughs. They feature leaders who have faced enormous workplace challenges and have emerged as inspiring wisdom figures, bringing a depth of real-world insight to our work together in the Inner MBA. I've gleaned so many practical ideas from these conversations, and I trust you will too. Thanks in advance for listening, and please let us know about your experience with the Inner MBA Socially Conscious CEO Podcast Series. Welcome back, everyone. When we met this morning to kick off our virtual opening day, I quoted Bayo Akamalafe from Nigeria, a renegade academic and lecturer who said, times are urgent, we must slow down. And I was very clear that we're slowing down because we need to make sure that where we're going is the right direction where we're going is the right direction. When I first met Rose Mercario, which was a few years ago in my office at Sounds True, she didn't say these exact words, but the headline that I got from our meeting was, times are urgent, we must be bold. We must be absolutely bold. And somehow these two sayings, slowing down and knowing that we're going in the right direction and being bold in our business life, to me, that's part of the interesting intersection here at the Inner MBA. And Rose Marcario is one of the boldest and bravest CEOs I've ever had the good fortune to meet. I wanna tell you just a little bit about Rose, and then she's going to join us here on our virtual stage. Under Rose's leadership over a 12-year period, Patagonia grew from $170 million in sales to over a billion. But even more, and I think more importantly to many of us here that are joining at the Inner MBA, under Rose's leadership at Patagonia, she demonstrated beyond any shadow of a doubt that being bold and brave and illustrating, demonstrating that activism can actually be not just part of the role of business, but it can be good for business. And Rose created an entire body of work at Patagonia that put this into action, activism, as a force that's good for the world, good for business, and we're gonna be talking about that. A few more things about Rose that I discovered in my research. Some of these I didn't know. Upworthy named Rose Marcario one of the nine most inspiring CEOs in America. In, 20 fast, in 2016, Fast Company called her one of the most creative CEOs. Conscious Company called Rose the ultimate mindful leader. And in 2015, President Obama honored her as a champion for change for Patagonia's family-friendly workplace policies. So just to share with you a little bit about how this session is going to go, I have a bunch of questions 
I want to ask Rose, and we're going to start there. And then we're going to open it up to your questions. And Soren's also going to join me on our virtual stage. So for your questions for Rose, just type them in the chat box, and we'll include them in the second half of your session. And I've already received some questions for people in advance of this session, and I'll be weaving them into this conversation. Okay, Rose, join me here on the Inner MBA virtual stage. Hey, Tammy. It's hey. Good to you. It's, I'm so, so happy for you for making the time for this. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful that you're doing this program, you know, because it's really the most essential part of being a great leader and a great manager and a great person in the world, you know, is just having the, the inner reflection and inner confidence and inner strength to, to do the things that uh, are required in this moment. And I, I feel that, you know, my own academic MBA taught me nothing. I mean, it taught me some things, but didn't teach me anything that I could use in my real work life. And so I'm excited about what you're doing here because I think that at the end of the day, the things that really made a big impact on me were my lived experience of actually managing and you know, being in the frying pan and in the fire of doing the work, you know, and seeing bad, you know, bad management and bad bosses and not wanting to be like them, you know, and, and doing this internal work. And so I just, I feel like this is just a great setting to have these conversations. All right. Well, let's start right away with all the bad bosses and bad managers you had early in your career. What did you learn from them about what not to do? Well, I think, you know, the biggest thing is like, it's, a, it's such a simple thing, <clears throat> but it's, it's to treat, it's, it's the golden rule, really. It's to treat people the way you'd want to be treated, you know? And if you're going through a hard time because you just had a death in the family, or you're going through a joyous time because you, you have a newborn baby, you know, you, you want to be, you want to be treated well, you want to be treated, you want to be treated with compassion and with understanding. Um, the, the worst bosses I've had are terrible listeners. They're completely incurious, you know, and those are things that really made a big impression on me and, and made me feel as, as a leader that it was so important to communicate with people and, mm -hmm. and to be transparent. And, and I felt when, when I, when I was CEO of Patagonia, I felt really strongly about responding to every note I got from every employee, you know, within 24 hours, you know, and, and, and feel like they had a personal relationship with me because that to me feels responsible and like being a good boss and it's how I'd want to be treated. Um, you know, I, it, it's been as far on the gamut as doing things that are, um, you know, questionable in terms of their ethics. Um, and, and so those are the kinds of things that, that I, you know, I, I learned not to do those things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it, it's interesting, Rose, just to start there because, you know, the golden rule, uh, that sounds true. That was one of the early principles that I was like, you know, just treat the people that work for you the way you would want to be treated. Yeah. And I realized when I would be interviewed and I would talk to people about that, I felt like people were going to kind of, they did, they made fun of me like, okay, great. You know, and here sounds true. It's this little company. It's easy to make fun of, but here you are the former CEO of Patagonia. You've got all the chops <laughs> and all the success behind you. But doesn't it seem like God saying something like that right at the beginning of our conversation, the golden rule, somehow that's been lost in our culture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it's lost in, I think, I think in business it's lost in many ways, but I also think there are many great businesses that, that, that abide by that. Unfortunately in the, in the public markets um, that's not rewarded. You know, it's it's shareholder primacy all the way. Um, so it's not rewarded. But um, but I think that I think that the next generation of entrepreneurs understands that um, and, and they're they're striving toward it. I see a lot more of that desire to model that than, than I've seen, you know, in, in my entire career. Okay, Rose, let's introduce you in a, in a more uh, 
uh, deep and personal way mm -hmm. to our inner MBA audience. Tell them a little bit about your early career. Mm -hmm. And then what I would say was kind of a, a, an early midlife crisis in your 30s that had you at the height of professional success, make a pretty big change. So share, yeah. share that story with people. Well, I, my, my, I'll, I'll kind of start with, with my motivations because I think motivation um, is something you always have to look at in every stage of your life. You know, and When I was younger, I was mostly motivated by trying to make money and survive because my parents divorced and my mother was quite ill and we were on food stamps and welfare and I couldn't afford really to go to a good college and, and all of that. Um, and so I focused on finance because I had a natural aptitude to that for that. Um, and I felt I could make the most money doing it. Um, and I, I kind of got to the apex of my career. I was a public company CFO of a spin out of Apple computer in Silicon Valley. And um, I realized that I just, I wasn't really happy that I had achieved the success that, you know, my immigrant grandparents would be like, you know, just so joyous over that I had reached this kind of level of success. But internally, I was really questioning um, the whole process around um, shareholder premacy and the idea that the only thing that was important was the earnings per share number. <laughs> and in public companies, it's quite true. And so, um, and I moved from that to, to private equity because I thought private equity, well, I might have more control there. I might have, be able to help entrepreneurs and and it was the same thing. It was it was even worse in a way um, because they wanted to, you know, have a big liquidity event in five years and sell the company. And most of the time that didn't work out very well for people or the planet. So I had this moment. I was doing a roadshow on a financing round in New York. Um, I was I was sitting in the back of a limousine. I could see my reflection in the in the window of the limousine. There was a a homeless person that was sort of trying to walk across the street, but was having trouble, um, you know, having, having some trouble getting across the street. And I found myself feeling frustrated by that. And I, I looked at my, because they were keeping me from going where I wanted to go that day. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, who is this person? And what have I become? And I opened the door <laughs> of the limousine and I walked to Central Park because it was the closest place to get to nature. And I sat there and I thought, I have to change my life. And it's like, you know, that's a huge thing to, to consider when you're very, you know, you finally have financial security, you finally have station in the world, you finally have achieved, you know, by any external measure to say, well, I have to totally reinvent and I have to totally reconsider what I'm doing. And so I had been studying Buddhism for probably 15 years at that point. And that felt like the truest place for me to go to go do a meditation retreat, um, to, to really consider what I was then and what I might become if I made this change. Okay, I, I, I heard that at this time you considered the possibility of being a Buddhist <laughs> nun. If you had become a nun, I think you would have uh, transformed uh, you know, the, the profession of uh, being a nun for, for all time, but uh, I'm glad you didn't. Uh, I'm gl but what I am curious about is what drew you so deeply? What was happening? What was the resonance inside you? So there's something in uh, meditation and the Buddhist path that is such a call. Well, I think because, you know, you live your life in the world and it, and it, for me at that time, my my internal world and my internal life felt very bifurcated from my from my work life and and i thought to myself where i feel my truest self is in my internal life and and why can't those things come together and if they can't come together then 
that didn't seem like a very fulfilling life to me. So I, I, I sort of set out using all the tools that, that Buddhism offers, you know, it, it offers, it's like such a powerful toolkit. Um, and it, it develops your confidence. And I, I feel like confidence is really important to making these big life shifts. If you don't cultivate your inner sense of confidence, you know, your, your inner joy, your inner, you know, equanimity and peace and kindness, then you're, you're not prepared for moments like that when they, when they come to you. Now, just to ask a bit of a challenging question, Rose, it's one thing to have confidence, but at that point in your life, you also had a level of success and financial security that you could stand on to make this shift. And sometimes I wonder, it seems like people tell you know, their story and it's like, well, I'd made it. And I'm like, well, yeah, you made it. So you could make the big leap. What would you say to people who are listening who are like, you know, I don't have financial security right now, but I don't want to be bifurcated either. I don't yeah. want that. I don't want to feel like I'm living two lives. Well, I think, I think there are a lot more opportunities than there were even 15 years ago, you know, with the benefit corporation movement, with, with, with the recognition, I mean, you know, the business roundtable just came out and, you know, said we need to recognize that there are multiple stakeholders and that, you know, we need to move away from the shareholder premacy model. Well, they haven't really done anything about it yet, but they've at least said it. Um, and so I think, you have to start with where you are. I mean, there are plenty of situations where I didn't feel um, that I had the power or the financial means to speak up. And, and I, I feel like in those moments, I tried to do as much as I could with what I had. And that was all sort of training for the moments that came later. Okay, so share with us what happened after you came back from your uh, journey uh, to India and deep meditation. How did you then become involved with Patagonia? Um, so a, a good friend of mine who knew that I was going through this, um, uh, going through this transformation uh, and, and was supportive of it. And I have to say that most of my corporate friends were not supportive of it. <laughs> and you know, and thought it was really crazy to, to leave, you know, to leave my, my work um, at what they considered to be, you know, one, one of the most important points in my career. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he connected me with Patagonia and um, they were looking for a CFO because um, they were needing a more professional CFO. And, um, and I, I met Yvonne um, and Casey Sheehan at the time, who was the CEO. And, um, and I, I sort of wasn't sure whether Yvonne was for real or not, to be honest with you, and whether Patagonia was for real or not. You know, I had read Let My People Go Surfing. I, I had, you know, known some about the company, but um, I was skeptical because I just was. I, I was, I was not necessarily trustworthy when I first met them. And I initially kind of took the, the work thinking, well, we'll see, we'll see what this really looks like behind the scenes. Because when you're CFO, you see everything, you know, you know, you know what's going on behind the scenes. So, um, and when I got there, I realized that it really was everything that, you know, folks said it, it was. I mean, Yvonne was giving you know, 1% of his sales to grassroots environmental organizations. Um, the company had incredibly family-friendly work policies and on-site childcare. And, um, you know, they just took a, a very humanistic approach to business. And I feel like I got to learn from the master working with Yvonne. I mean, he's just an incredible man. Okay. You know, I want to get into some of the specifics of how Patagonia operated under mm -hmm. your leadership and continues to operate. But before we get there, I'm curious if you've developed for yourself a set of what I might call core operating principles of a business that wants to be a force for good in these urgent times. Yeah. What are, what are those core operating principles or philosophical underpinnings? Well, the first 
I mean, I, I would say the first principle is really actions speak. I mean, actions speak louder than anything. Um, and, and if your actions don't follow your values, then you're lost as a company, I, I feel like. And that means making hard decisions a lot of the time. Um, I think you have to know what you value as, a, as an organization. Um, of course, know your, your mission, if it's a product, a service, that kind of thing. And inherent in the product and service is quality, you know, and, and, and inherent in that is, is taking responsibility for the environmental footprint that you have. Um, so taking responsibility for your product or service from end to end. And, and also bearing a responsibility to society. So essentially, Tammy, it's, it's multi-stakeholder capitalism. It's recognizing that, yes, you have a responsibility to make money and create profit for the shareholders, whatever that body looks like, um, even if the money, the shareholders might be just putting the money back into the company, right? I mean, the shareholder could be the company itself in a way. Um, so you have a responsibility to do that or you're not a responsible manager. You're not a responsible executive, but um, you also have a responsibility to your society, to your employees, to your supply chain, and to the environment. And I, I don't think it's it's you know too much to expect that of business. I mean, business has an incredible amount of power, and it has an important voice, and it, I think an important role to play. Now, Rose, I've heard that you use as a decision-making framework a 30-year view, certain decisions that are important to a business. Why 30 years? I was curious. Like, how did you come up with that? And what kinds of decisions would you put through that 30-year view? Right. Well, that, so, so I think looking at your business, most people look at their and plan their business three to five years out, you know? Well, if you do that, you might not be taking into account the effect of climate change in the next 20 years, which could totally, depending on what the business is, could totally devastate it um, if, if there's no action. <laughs> uh, so, so the 30-year time frame is really more of a, it's, it's a thought experiment that goes along with the planning, which is, are we thinking long-term about products and services and people? You know, it's funny with COVID, I feel like we, we caught up with technology in a way. Like we have all this technology and we just kept adding it on and adding it on and adding it on. The business never caught up with the technology. You know, we were all still flying around on planes everywhere and, you know, having conferences face to face and stuff like that. And sometimes you need that, but you don't need it all the time. And you know, we miss that, you know, thinking about that. But I, I think the 30 year time frame it helps you to just think bigger about where your business is going. And it was really helpful to us, especially around technology and innovation. And that might sound weird because technology and innovation is, is so rapid. But I think that it, it really does serve you much better to, you, you, of course, you have to plan the short term. Everybody has to do that. But to really think more longer term, and that's not rewarded, really, in the, especially in the public markets, right? It's like quarter to quarter. Yeah, I mean, to, to, it's not just not rewarded, but there are a lot of things built into the system that are working against that. I mean, if you have investors in your company and they're expecting a shorter uh time return, or mm -hmm. there's all kinds of things that work against that view. I wonder if you could give us some examples of the 30 year view that you've applied to thinking about things. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was one example. I mean, if we were, we're in a business that sells, you know, snow, snow gear, will there be snow in 20 years? I mean, you know, the, the winters are getting shorter, you know, it, it, it forces you to think about the bigger external external issues in the world. And it forces you to, to, to sort of take that into account. When it comes to technology, 
you know, there's all kinds of issues that happen in manufacturing relative to technology. I mean, there's 3D printing, there's, you know, digital body scanning. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of technology out there. Um, and, and most companies are sort of focused on what do we do today and how do we incrementally make it better? Mm-hmm. And, and my, my feeling is you have to be thinking really big because if you're not thinking really big about your business and asking really big questions, who is? If your management team isn't doing that, who is? <laughs> you know? And so, and I, and I think what you get when you do that is, is you get, I mean, a lot of the questions around circularity and Reuse, you know, repurposing our clothing and that kind of thing. That that came out of that longer term thinking. It came out of the thinking of, hey, we we may not have any virgin materials left in twenty years, because we've consumed four planets worth of, you know, resources. So how do we use the resources that we already have, or that we've already created? So, yeah, I mean, I I think when you do that too, Tammy, what happens is if you can show that process in some way to to your employees and and help to bring them in into that process, they they understand like where the where they're going for the big things they're going for, you know, and they feel more engaged because most people want to make the world a better place. You know, most most employees go to work every day and want to do a really good job and make the world a better place. And and so the management, in my view, you know, has to has to inspire them to want to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, Rose, when I asked you about these uh, core philosophical principles, if you will, the very first one you said was action speak. And uh, tell me more what you mean by that and oh, where you think people maybe fall short in giving rhetoric, but not putting actions to their words. Yeah, there's a, there's a, I don't, I don't remember where I heard it, so I can't give the credit, but it's, it's like vision, vision without execution is hallucination. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can have all kind. you know, sit in a conference room and talk about all these you know, big ideas, but until you do it and act and step out and make a move, even when you're not sure, even when you're not 100% ready, even when no one's ever done it before and you have no idea how people are going to react, unless you do that, you know, I I think to me, it it means you have to act. You can't just be one of the herd, you know, and that's, that's been a really, I mean, for, for me at Patagonia, I used to say to my team, um, let's do stuff that makes it so hard for people to follow us. Like they, they want to follow us, but they can't. It's like it makes them nervous to follow us because it's just so wild what we're doing, <laughs> you know. And, and I feel like that's um, that ability to act and to act quickly is the difference between whether you have a really, really successful company and whether you have kind of like an incremental company in a way. Mm-hmm. I can, I can tell you, you're kicking my butt right now on a couple of things. It's great. It's good. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay. Now, uh, Patagonia, uh, is known as the activist company. And I think, you know, historically a lot of people think, okay, activism, who you vote for, what you did, that's your own business. Mm-hmm. Our, our business's job is something else to do something else. But at Patagonia, you blurred all those lines. Uh, talk a little bit about that and, and the discovery that actually, and I think this is a strong statement, that activism can be good for business. Yeah. I mean, I think activism is good for business. I mean, and it's it's proven. I mean, I'll give you a, a, an example. In 2016, we started this initiative called Time to Vote. And it's a bipartisan initiative. And the idea was to give our employees time off to vote. And, you know, for corporate employees, it's one thing. But if you're working in a retail store 
and or you're working in a distribution center, you might not have that time. And we asked some other companies to join. Um, some of them did. And the issue was, I mean, the 2016 election, we had less than 60% turnout. If you look at any other developed democracy, their voter turnout's like over 80%. So it's just a sad, pathetic thing <laughs> that we have less than 60%. Now, does business have a role to play? I think it does. Is that activism? I think it's some, some level of activism, yeah. But it's also solving, it's helping to solve a problem. It's helping to push society forward. It's helping to create progress. I mean, we did things like sue Donald, Donald Trump's administration over the reduction of bear's ears and, and of national monuments that were, um, that were created. But we've been in the conservation world for 30 years, and that was something that we had never seen happen in our entire 30-year history. So we had a voice to, to say something about that. Um, I don't think activism is all, I mean, look at, look at Google and, you know, the, you know, the selling, selling face recognition stuff to police and stuff like that, or, or to, to communist countries. And, you know, their employees rebelled, you know, or making products for ice during, you know, I mean, their employees rebelled. I mean, I think activism is here to stay, whether whether it's the company that does it or the employees. So so companies need to know what their values are and what they stand for, and they need to go for it. Okay, but let's just go back to this relatively tame issue of voting. You know, yeah. it's a nonpartisan issue. Let's vote. But when you said the question, does business have a role to play in helping people vote? I could imagine a business person saying, uh, no, that's not my job. My job is to run my business, to sell the food products I'm making, whatever, getting people to vote. That's, that's not my job as a business person. Why do you think business has a role to play when it comes even just to something like that, to voting? Okay, because business is a part of civil society. And it's the place where most people spend their time during the day. And if you have a business and democracy, you should want a democracy to stay a democracy. I mean, you know, it's to me that's a that's a pretty simple thing. It's you know, like you said, that's a that's a relatively tame that's a relatively tame issue. But most people really understand it and get behind it because actually this this is what pushes policy. Does business have a role to play in policy? Well, think about the fossil fuel industry and the lobbyists that have been, you know, you know, promoting this fake science around around cl uh, climate, right? I mean, they're certainly playing a role. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say someone's asking themselves, you know, I'm not quite sure how my company should play more of an activist role. I, you know, I my, uh, you know, at Patagonia, they're. Their, their customer base are these rabid environmentalists. They know who they're talking to. They know they're going to get positive feedback for doing things that support the protection of public lands. Well, my audience is more, lots of different kinds of people. I think, you know, some of them might be, dare I say it, Republicans. Mm -hmm. what, how, do I, how do I navigate this and be an activist force? I think it's really rooted in what, what your company's values are and what your company is about, you know, um, and who your employees are in a way. It, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to use, I think a good example would be, would be um, when, when the Trump administration used, uh, started the Muslim ban and there was all protesting going on at all the airports and stuff. And but it was really the corporations that came out that that had a lot of Muslim employees and made made a legal plea and a legal argument, you know, to the government. So and they had a good standing to do that because it affected a lot of their workforce. Why, why Patagonia? I mean. If, if there's, if the air in your 
in your uh, um, at your corporate office um, is is not breathable. If the water is so tainted that people can't drink it, well, are you, is the company going to be activist about that? I mean, I think they should be. Mm-hmm. And then do you have any guidelines for people to think through, you know, how do I approach this? Which issues do I go after? Yeah. How do I communicate with my customers? There's so many issues. If I talk about this one, I'll be missing these and then yeah. I'll get flack for that. Well, there's always that risk that you're going to piss some people off. I mean, that's just a reality. And, and that happens all the time. I mean, there is no way to inoculate yourself against that risk, really, unless you sit in a corner and never say anything. In which case, you're not going to be, I think, a very successful brand, honestly, if you're thinking about from a brand perspective. Um, and not that important things can't get done behind the scenes, but I think it's important for, for people to, to step out and, and say what, what they care about. I think at the end of the day, it has to be what are the values of the company? I mean, the company is like a living, breathing entity. And what are those values? And what do you care about? And what do the I mean, there's something that brings that group of people together to work together. And hopefully it's not just money. And it's not, you know, it's not just these things that don't create passion and drive and, you know, wonder about what you're, what you're doing. Um, and that's, I think, where you start. Like, what do we really care about? Yeah. And I, you know, in that, I want to ask you what would be like the most elementary question, like just, this is the single most elementary question I could think to ask you, Rose. Cause when we were talking about like, is it business's job to help people be better citizens and go vote? Is it business's job mm -hmm. to uh, help uh, end climate uh, disruption? Is that our job? What do you Rose Marcario think yeah. business is for? What is business for? Business for. Yeah, what, what, what is business for? What, what is its job in the world, the job of business? I think the job of business is to make people's lives more enjoyable, to make people feel um, to provide them with goods and services that they need for their life, um, to provide them with um, inspiration, um, in some cases, like like what your business is. I mean, inspiration, insight, education. I mean, there's so many aspects to what, what business's job is. Where I think it's gone wrong is just a really, really simple word. It's, it's greed. You know, when it go when it gets to being so greedy that you don't make decisions that are good for people and the planet, then there's something really broken. And I think, you know, we've all had to face, especially with COVID, our own consumption habits, because all of a sudden, you know, we we couldn't consume in the rates that we were consuming, and I think that's a huge lesson to everyone that at the end of the day you know it's not about just producing more and cheaper it's about how does business serve the quality of life and you know the dignity of work and you know i mean yeah that's what okay that. so as you know this is the inner mba and we're focused on inner development and how mm -hmm. it then shows itself in the outer world. And we got a question from Nathan from Alberta, Canada, who wrote in, of all the inner practices you've adopted, which has had the greatest impact on effectiveness when it comes to organizational leadership? And how have you been able to note or observe that impact? I think the greatest impact 
sort of tool or practice has been meditation in multiple forms. Um, Tonglen practice is very powerful. And, and I feel like a huge part of being a really good leader is being to being able to put yourself to understand someone else's suffering. Rose, for people who are unfamiliar with Tonglen, will you introduce it to our to our listeners? Yeah. So Tonglen is like it's a compassion practice, and I won't do it justice of explaining it all correctly, but it's it's basically um, I'll use the example I used earlier. You know, and instead of being annoyed at the person who was trying to cross the street, <laughs> um, I would generate compassion for them and understand both try to understand what their experience was and, and also understand my experience of them and, and generate compassion and loving kindness toward them. Um, and, and that, if you do that, um, you know, Pema Chodron says to do that in little ways, like when you get, you know, someone cuts you off or something like that, and you have this strong reaction to something or someone, and then you, you sort of, you know, work on generating compassion for them. Um, and that when you practice in those little ways, you start to just develop that muscle and I feel like that's probably been the most powerful part of my practice is that when I immediately feel that feeling of, oh, this is too much, or I can't look at that, or whatever, whatever it may be, um, which, which when you have a really high pressure job, you have those moments a lot. You know, it's like, here's one more thing, and I can't, I can't take that. And when you do that kind of regular practice, you, oh, you have a little more room for that. Oh, I, okay, I've got room for that. I know I need to stop and, you know, take. And I, I think the way I've seen it reflect in, in the work that I've done is I feel very personally connected to everyone that I work with. And that, and, and that personal connection also helps, I think, to make um, – the the work that we're doing feel very very tangible and um, and and juicy you know it just feels really good to work together and and I think that it's it's about developing compassion and recognizing those places in yourself when you're just shutting down and shutting off um, and so yeah mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you a question about that, Rose, because I know um, that developing of a of a real connection and care for the people you work with. I I, I sense that in you, and I I know how important it is to me. And I know in the pandemic you had to go through the experience at Patagonia of furloughing some of the people who worked in your retail stores. And I'm wondering how do you do that with a tender heart and care? How do you do something like that? Well, you know, Tammy, we use the same, it's funny, it's like we use the exact same process, exchange yourself with the other. What would you want in that moment? You know, you'd want to know that, first of all, it didn't have anything to do with you. This is a pandemic, you know, you'd want to know that we're here for you to help you. We'll help you file for unemployment. We'll help you get what, uh, you know, other types of benefits that you have. Um, will help with any other situa special situation that you have, that, we're, that we still showed up. It's like when anything bad happens in anyone's life, like what do you remember? You remember the people that show up and are present. It yep. can't be fixed, you know, which, is, which was hard for me because I want to fix everything. <laughs> I, like, I want to act in some way that's going to fix it all. And, but, but there was no fixing it, but we could show up and we could be present and we could be helpful 
and we could give people as much notice as possible. We could, you know, do all the things that would make it easier for people. Mm-hmm. Keep their healthcare going, you know, things like that. We had a question rose from Estelle in Amsterdam who wrote in, with your former busy job as CEO of Patagonia, how were you able to manage your daily meditation practice? Um, well, I meditate in the morning before I go to work and I meditate at night when I get home to kind of decompress. What I missed when I was CEO is I really didn't have time to go on retreat or do anything in, a, in what I would consider kind of a deeper way um, than my own personal practice. But I was really glad that I, I had spent years before that having the time to do that. So I, I, you know, I took that with me. Okay. Uh, someone else has written in, what would be the words of advice or wisdom you would share with your earlier self, knowing what you know now? I wish I would have trusted my, my instincts better. I think I listened too much to the external world of what I, I thought um, was success defined externally. I think I would have come to where I am now much sooner if I had had the confidence to, to, um, to set that aside and not be so influenced by it. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard you talk about trusting your gut and uh, mm-hmm. recommending that to, to people. And I'd like to know more about that. Like, do you have, uh, and I'm going to get kind of detailed here. Do you have a feeling like, oh, this is the feeling of this is right. Or the feeling of like, don't go there. Or like, what is the language in which your gut instincts yeah. appear? I have to say when it's a business thing, when it's a business idea, I, I feel like I know immediately. Like I see it and I know it's right. You know, like if we're looking at a bunch of marketing material, I'll see one thing and I'll know that's the right thing. Let's go do that. Um, in my in my personal life, it's different. I, I feel like I'm... Um, I'm more, I vacillate more. <laughs> I trust my mm-hmm. gut and then I question it and I trust it and I question it. You know, it's a little, a little bit more of a, a process. It takes mm-hmm. me a while to get there. And one of the things I'm curious about, because um, I know you enough to feel your beautiful heart, mm-hmm. which is how your heart works in business, how that plays in for you. Well, you know, business is, is tough, you know, and, and you have to be able to represent the interests of your company. And, but that doesn't mean you ever have to make anyone feel like a loser or make anyone feel like uh, diminished in doing that. And I think that that's the most important part of it for me is just, you know, to, to try and create as much as possible win-win situations. Sometimes you're not in a win-win situation. You know, you've got a, you've got something you've really got to deal with. It's, it's not solvable um, in that way. Um, but I think if you do it with integrity and you do it in an ethical fashion, um, then that's leading by example. To end, Rose, uh, I'm wondering, I'm going to ask you a favor here, one more favor, which is, uh, you know, all of our participants, this is the opening of their nine-month journey. And I wonder if you could share, and this is a little bit odd, but it's what occurred to me, a type of blessing for their nine months in the inner MBA and the journey that they're going to be going through and the possibilities for it. Ask questions that are so big that only your life can answer them. Effing great. Rose Marcario, you're the best. Thank you. Love you guys. Love you. Thank you so much. Wonderful, wonderful thing you're doing, Tammy. It's, it's so prescient and so needed. And I'm so grateful to be a part of this inaugural um, event. So Sora and Tammy, thank you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you.
So we're just about at the end of our inaugural session, first ever Inner MBA uh, collection of, of folks, first day. Um, I'm feeling so much gratitude to all of you, and I see the chat is has a lot of gratitude and feelings. How are you doing, Tammy? Doing good. Doing, doing good. It. All right. So there's so much more. Again, this is just the first day. We have nine months of learning and engaging. So if you have questions that didn't get answered today, know that they will get addressed. They will get answered. Uh, if there's pieces that you're feeling like, wow, I really wished I could learn more about that, or we really wished I could hear more about that, we have a lot more coming your way. Um, for today, what we want to do is we know there's been a lot of information you've taken in. There's a lot of um, quality content that you've downloaded. It, it's, been a, it's been a full day. And we want to give you a chance just to kind of talk about it. For those of you who have some extra time, if you need to leave, of course you can leave. But for those of you who feel like, wow, I want to meet with more people, I want to really talk about some of the highlights that, that happened today, some of the questions that are beginning to emerge, how am I feeling as I begin this first day of launching the InterMBA? Um, we're going to invite you. We have about until uh, till 4 p.m. Um, uh, Pacific Coast time. So that's in about 50 minutes. We have about 50 minutes um, where it's just really about community building. And if you're shy and you don't generally join community-oriented things, um, this might be an invitation to do that. Uh, there's hundreds of us from across the world who are all interested in some of these same topics. And so in about, in a few minutes, I'll stop talking and then you'll have a chance to go over into the, um, the communities tab and you'll be able to find different groups that you uh, would like to engage in. Again, there's no huge agenda. Um, our encouragement would be whatever group you find, practice deep listening, practice learning, talk about what's real for you. You know, as you finish this day of, of this uh, content, of these interviews and of this, this time to explore and explore what business looks like to you. What's your vision for business, personal vision for business? What's your company's vis uh, vision for business? Um, what's coming up for you as this day uh, comes to a close? So we'll do that in a minute, but first, just a huge, huge thank you for, for um, joining us in this endeavor. We're so excited. I think I speak for both Tam and I. We're so excited to get this off the ground after, it's really been two years in the works uh, in the development, and it's, it's just uh, such a thrill to now have it live um, and launched. Um, Tammy, any final thoughts before we move into the groups? Thank you for being pioneers with us, trailblazers with us. Thank you. Yeah, so much more to come. And again, thank you so much. And we have launched. So take care. Again, it's a communities tab and you'll be able to see different groups. You can connect in there. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening. Please make sure to leave your comments on this interview here on the platform. And if there's a socially conscious CEO that you'd like us to interview as part of the Inner MBA, please let us know at innermba at soundstrue.com. <laughs>